Hey guys, this is David, aka Bible Scribe. Thank you for checking out my podcast today. I just wanted to remind you that I also have a YouTube channel and a blog. This podcast is a rebroadcast of my YouTube videos. You can find my YouTube channel with an easy search for Bible Scribe. My blog is www.bible-scribe.com, and there you can find notes from my broadcasts and contact me directly using the contact form on that site. So please find a way to connect with me or my other listeners, and God bless you in your search for the truth of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Now to the podcast. Hey guys, it is Bible Scribe back again. Thank you for joining me. We are going to go over the God of genocide. We're going to talk about the Hebrew God Yahweh and this notion, mostly espoused by atheists, that God was a genocidal madman, if you will, that was hell bent on destroying races of individuals uh, across the world throughout history, and that. Uh, he was, in fact, vindictive and uh, malevolent instead of a loving God. And they would use evidence of the battles that were fought put, uh, specifically in the Old Testament. And so we're going to go over all of that in this video. And we're going to ask the question, was God a genocidal madman? And uh, let me bring my outline up so we can go over it. We're going to first talk about what is genocide. We have to define the term and understand the way people understand the term before we can actually apply it to what happened in the Old Testament. Then we're going to ask the question, did God kill the Canaanites? Uh, and we're going to ask more than just the Canaanites. We're going to ask, did he kill the Amalekites? Did he kill, the whole, did he kill all of mankind in a genocidal fashion during the flood of Noah? We're going to ask these questions. We're going to look at the history of the giants before the flood of Noah, and that's going to be important to understanding why God might have done some of the things he did, uh, and the, the way that knowledge was passed from the giant races past the time of the flood, uh, and then the ziggurats of Ur will come up in that discussion. We're going to then talk about the Canaanites. We're going to talk about where they came from and what they were like, what they did, and then we're going to talk about justifications for the killing of the Canaanites or the killing of other groups of people throughout history that uh, God may or may not have been involved with. And we're to see why that could have been justified very easily. Then we're going to talk about a summary and illustration that I have just to talk about this after the fact and give you my views on it. So that is our outline we're going to go through. Now, stick with me. It's probably going to be a little long. And, you know, as my videos are getting more, you know, my channel's getting more mature, we're going over some deeper topics. Just be aware that as time goes on, they will get long and they will be long because there's such a volume of research and information that's going to go into these videos. You can't expect to get something for nothing. You can't expect to understand big issues and the nuance of scripture and the, the principles of God and the details of history without doing the work 
and spending the time doing that research and getting understanding. And you know, I'm boiling a lot of it down for you, so just know that I'm doing my best to get the information into a format where you can get a hold of it in as short a time as possible, but that still isn't a five minute video and there's no way you could get this background in a five minute video. So just be aware that as these videos are a little long, you're getting information you know, aggregated together that you're not going to find in any other place. But you have to do the work of listening and paying attention and putting in some time to get there. That is the price of entry. So let's go forward and talk about what is genocide in general. We're going to have to define the term before we can see if that's an appropriate term to use when describing the actions of God and or the Israelites in the Old Testament in regards to the races or peoples that were defeated or destroyed. So, you know, I just pulled down from different dictionaries across the internet what is genocide. And so I think this first definition is a pretty standard definition. The deliberate, systematic, widespread extermination or attempted extermination of a national, racial, religious, or ethnic group. Uh, you could also just say a systematic killing of a racial or cultural group. Uh, and then this last one is the systematic killing of substantial members, numbers of people on the basis of an ethnicity, religion, political opinion, social status, or other particularity. So generally by these descriptions, we can say that, you know, a, a general basic understanding of the word genocide is taking a people group designated by anything, really, by a religion or by a, a locale, perhaps a geography or a ethnicity, as it says there, all sorts of different things. It could be a skin color, whatever, but any group of people systematically killed and exterminated for the sole purpose of removing them, right? Um, so I think that that is a good basic definition of genocide. Now, uh, to go beyond just those basic definitions, I wanted to say this, that I think most people, when they hear the word genocide, and when they talk about this topic, that genocide to most people means a malevolent, evil-intented, destruction of a people not just you know if, if it was a if it was a battle and a whole race is exterminated that's usually not what people mean when they say this word they usually mean uh, in terms of battle they mean taking captive of a group of people and then systematically walking them through a line and chopping their heads off so everyone is killed that's essentially what people mean, although all that is not implied in the basic definition of the word genocide. But just know that when we come to this topic and you bring your baggage to the topic and looking at the Bible, that when we apply the word genocide to anything in the Bible, that along with that comes people's perception of a malevolence, of a hatred, of a emotional, you know, psychosis, perhaps. And so all that comes along with the term, although that's not part of the definition. So if, for instance, someone accidentally dropped a bomb and exterminated a race of people without malevolent intention, 
genocide still would apply to that event because a race was extinguished. Do you understand where I'm coming from there? Just so you know that that's the case. We bring a lot of baggage to words in our current modern culture. So the reason that people usually say God committed genocide is because in the Old Testament, God, for one, instructed Joshua to take the Israelites into Canaan and do battle against, and in some cases, slaughter the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And so, you know, people look at that, and generally speaking, people don't have much background in the Bible when they look at that, and they look at just that statement, and they say, well, yeah, that's genocide. That's horrible. Shouldn't kill anybody. Well, we're going to look at at the reality of this thing in the Bible, it's going to look a little different than that. But again, if you have a surface level glance at it and don't spend any time understanding, then you come away with a kindergarten understanding of what happened. And so that's what most people, I think, have. Then atheist and scholar Richard Dawkins, and this is what I think he started most of this conversation in our modern time. With his book, The God Delusion, he writes this, The God of the Old Testament is a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Um, (laughs) If you've ever watched any... Uh, footage of Richard Dawkins speaking, uh, he's pretty emotional. And (laughs) we're going to look, though, at the end of this, and part of my summary, we're going to look at these statements, and after we understand what happened in the Old Testament, we're going to see if each of those things is actually true and could be said about God. Because I think this, most people have heard this kind of thing, and with no understanding, just believe it. And that's faith, isn't it? So, the question, did God commit genocide? Now we're going to get into some of the realities of what happened in the Old Testament. So, there was the flood, and I think most people don't think of the flood when they think of the quote-unquote genocide in the Bible. They think more of the armies of the Israelites under Joshua going through Canaan and removing the people of Canaan, the Canaanites, and doing battle with them, and in some cases killing them. Um, But the flood also could and should be considered a wiping out of not only one race, but whoever was on the earth. The flood of Noah killed everyone except for one family, Noah's family, his sons and their wives. And so... I think we're going to we're going to also look at that in our study here but then the taking of the promised land like I said is the one that most people think of when they they try to pin genocide on the Yahweh God is when God commanded Joshua and the Israelites to wage war on the Canaanites and remove them from the promised land of Canaan because God had promised that to Abraham and his seed and his descendants and Jacob and all of the Israelites So, those are the two things we're going to be focused on, mostly. Now, a little history on the flood, so we understand that. And this is in Genesis chapter 6, is where the flood uh, narrative starts. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and took them wives, all of which they choose. 
Now, just so you are aware, if you don't know, the sons of God are angels. This is a term used in all old ancient texts for angels, even throughout the Bible. Although most people, many people don't understand that. They don't recognize it uh, because it's not a, a phrase that in our language, in our modern culture, means, means much other than when we hear son of God, we think Jesus. But sons of God throughout the Old Testament in Hebrew meant angels. So they came and took the daughters of men and intercoursed with them, and they had fallen progeny, and those were called the Nephilim. The Lord said, My spirit will not always strive with man when he saw this, for he is also flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now this 120 years is God saying to Moses that in 120 years from this time period point will be the flood. It doesn't mean anything other than that. And there's other texts that I've, I've found that show this very clearly. Whereas we take it in the English out of the Bible, we think it means man's not going to live to be older than 120 years. No, this was God saying to Moses at this time, in 120 years, I'm going to cut off mankind. That mankind on earth was only going to live that long and then the flood. In verse 4, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bared children to them, and they became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And this is the giants, are the Nephilim, and this is the start of that line of beings. And this is in many other texts as well as the Bible, including Sumerian, Akkadian, all those other ancient texts. Now, of course, they're not written in Hebrew, so you have to be able to interpret them and understand that it's talking about angels and their progeny, but they all are. It's a very common theme throughout the ancient world. So in verse 5 of Genesis 6, God saw that the wickedness of man, now he's talking about mankind as well, even though there was this incursion with the angels and the Nephilim, that was horrible, but then also mankind was wicked. The wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. It repented the Lord that he had made man on earth and grieved him at his heart. The Lord said, I will destroy man from which or whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me I have made them. Because so much was going wrong because of sin. There were so many different things going on. We're going to talk a little bit more about some of those in just a second. And then in Genesis 6:13, God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them from the earth. So in this, the flood, we've, we're talking about genocide. We're trying to pin that term and use it to apply to God. And in a basic sense, God was destroying all mankind for sin. So you have to ask yourself, you know, I talked about bringing a lot of baggage to the term genocide the baggage of thinking that someone who commits genocide is malevolently intended and evil, wicked, horrible, insane, psychotic. But in this case, all of mankind had become wicked and evil and was doing sinful acts. And we're going to look at more of those sinful acts in a minute. You'll agree with me how sinful and wicked they were. Uh, but just to know that, you know, God did this for a reason. It was because there was wickedness. And God, by the way, also knows that man is both spirit and flesh. As he mentioned here, the end of flesh is come, but the spirits were going to live on. So all God was doing here was cleansing the earth. 
and he had a reason for it. It wasn't a malevolent intent. It wasn't a psychotic hatred of mankind. It was God had created mankind, and now mankind had become wicked almost in totality, except for what it says in Genesis 6 about Noah, that he was righteous and pure in his lineage, meaning there was no Nephilim hybridization in his genealogy. He was pure of lineage, and he was righteous man on earth. And both those things are attested to not only in the Bible, but in lots of other writings, including the Dead Sea Scrolls. So let's talk a little bit, because this is pertinent to our understanding of what happened even after the flood. We need to know the history of these giants, this Nephilim race, what happened after, what was their history, and why did they become about, and what happened with them, because it will feed into our understanding of the Canaanites and what was going on after the flood as well. So we just read that verse in Genesis 6, verse 4, said that, you know, angels came to the daughters of men and they had progeny. That progeny was these giants. And that is explained in other writings as well. We're going to look at some. But just know that they were born of women, these giants, and they became mighty men on the earth, it says. In Numbers 13, it says, there we saw giants. And this is when the Israelites are going into Canaan and looking around at the different uh, races they found. And this is, of course, after the flood. But he said, they said, there we saw the giants. We saw the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers to them. So they saw these beings and it doesn't talk about how exactly tall they were other sources talk about between 12 and 16 feet was the size of most of these giants um, and so they saw this and they recorded it there in numbers 13. in deuteronomy 2 11 talks about the giants the anakims and the moabites that the moabites called them the emims but that these were giants in deuteronomy 2 20 says there was also a count of the land of giants. Giants dwelt there in old time, and the Ammonites called them Zamzumims. Deuteronomy 3, verse 11, only Og king of Bashan remained at that time of the remnant of the giants, and his bed was a bed of iron, and it's nine cubits in length. A cubit is about a foot and a half, so if you multiply nine times one and a half, that's the feet. It was around 13, 14 feet long, his bed. Deuteronomy 3.13 says uh, that all the region of Argob with all Bashan was called the land of the giants. So this is well attested to even in our scriptures. We're also going to see it in other writings in just a second. In Joshua 12.4, he talks about Og the king of Bashan again being the remnant of the giants. So it's repeated. So we know this is the, the fact they understood and the way they understood things. Uh, in Joshua 13.12, talks again about Og of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth, and he was the remnant of the giants. Joshua 15, 18 talks about the Valley of the Giants, the Valley of Hinnom, uh, and I mentioned that in my uh, video on the Battle of Gog and Magog, which you may want to check out at some point. Joshua 17, 15 uh, talks about the land of the Perizzites, which was also of the giants. Joshua 18.16 talks again about the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of the Giants. And it keeps repeating these things so we know it's not like a mistake. We know it's not a textual error. 
This was repeated again and again, talked about all through the Old Testament. And remember, most of these we're getting Joshua, Deuteronomy, Numbers, now in 2 Samuel. These are all after the flood, all right? 2 Samuel 21.16 talks about a guy named Ishbibinab, <laughs> which was the son of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight. 2 Samuel 21.18, Sibekai, the Hushatite, slew Saph, which was the son of the giant. 2 Samuel 21.20, a man of great stature, it talks about, had on every hand and foot six fingers, six toes. And he was born to the giants. Second Samuel 21:22 talks about there were four born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David. It's talking about Goliath, I believe, and his brothers. These were all giants. Just as the narrative of David and Goliath is told and has always been told, these were actual giants. They weren't just tall men. They were from these races that descended or were born of the mating of angels and humans. And if you want to say that, oh, angels and humans can't mate, well, you don't know that for one, but number two, all the ancient texts said they did. All of them. So good luck making that argument. First Chronicles 24 says, Sibachai, the Hushtatite, again, this is a repeat of what was in Joshua, but you see it's said again. So we know how authoritative this information is. First uh, Chronicles 26 Man of great stature, fingers and toes, four and twenty, the same thing we just read in Joshua, and again, the same thing in 28, that they were born to the giant in Gath. This is Goliath and his family. So just so you know, this history of the giants and what happened is in all these books and more. I tried to just put as many as I could on the screen. Uh, this is most of what I have found, but uh, I did know there were a few I didn't even put on here that I already found because there's just not enough room. I just wanted you to see how broad this is. It's in the book of Ezekiel in the Bible. It's in the book of Jude. It's in the extra biblical texts. The book of Enoch, the second Enoch, book of Jubilees, Testament of Reuben, the book of Jasher. Josephus' writings record that this was the history of the Jews that they all agreed upon. There were giants. Philo writes about it, a historian in the first century. Dead Sea Scrolls write about the giants. The Book of Noah. Justin Martyr, the, now the early church fathers, they all talked about this too. Justin Martyr talks about them. Irenaeus, Clement of Rome, Tertullian, St. Ambrose, Lactantius, Commodianus, Origen, Clement of Alexandria. All of those church fathers, and these were the earliest ones, talk about the giants in history and the legitimacy of the giant narrative. Then you have uh, other Jewish writings, both the Talmud and the Zohar, both write extensively about the giants. And then there's the pseudepigraphal book of Baruch and the Ethiopian book of Kebra Nagast all talk about the giants. And they give, all of them give more information. So if you want to know about giants, you know, it's a lot, but you can look in these sources. You can find out little tidbits about them here and there, different things about what was going on. So just so I, because I boiled all that down, because I've read all those, uh, and I know all those narratives, but this is the main points of what happened with the giants, what they were and what they did. First, the giants were born to women who conceived with fallen angels. And this is what all of the sources record. They were called the Nephilim, the fallen ones. They were never meant to exist. God didn't make these beings intentionally to exist. They were this 
product of an unholy union. They were murderous and they were cannibals, according to the ancient texts. They ate animals to the point of depleting them on earth so much that then they turned on humanity and started cannibalizing humans. They also mated with animals. They did all sorts of horrible sexual acts with different animals and things. They were, they were debauchery. It was just complete lack of moral and ethical anything. So they mated with animals and created all sorts of different hybrid type beings. And some of those are chronicled in those ancient texts. Um, particularly beings that were like centaurs, half human, half horse, etc., etc. Those animals and beings are actually chronicled in those old texts. They also fought with one another and slew each other. And this was one of the judgments mentioned in the book of Enoch that God said would happen to these Nephilim that that the uh, fallen watchers who came to the women and produced the Nephilim would see their sons die at their own hands. So they infought against each other all the time and slew one another. And so part of this flood judgment of Noah was not only to kill all of mankind because they had become wicked in concert with what was going on with the Nephilim, but it was to also judge and wipe the earth clean of all the remnants of those Nephilim because uh, of the wickedness there and the destruction that was occurring on earth. So we have to understand though that two of these giants were also, as Genesis 6 says, thereafter the flood. And so, and we just read all through Joshua, Chronicles, Samuel, all these different books in the Bible that were after the flood that talk about the remnants of the giants. And so we need to understand that that did occur after the flood as well as before the flood. Genesis 6-4, as we read, you know, it said there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. And those days in this context is talking about the days of sin, the age of sin or lawlessness before the flood. That was what the ancient text called that time period, the age of lawlessness or age of sin. And this also, like it says, happened after the flood. So Josephus records, and Josephus being a first century historian, uh, a Jewish historian, he had a writing called The Antiquities of the Jews where he recorded all of a lot of Jewish history, kind of a cyclopedia, which is main points of Jewish history in a writing called Antiquities of the Jews. And it says that the descendants of Seth then before the flood, preserved their knowledge to survive the flood. Now, the descendants of Seth uh, were seen in the, and it said in both that book of Antiquities and the book of Enoch, that they were astronomers and wise men as far as sciences and stuff like that. And they recorded their knowledge on two pillars. One was of brick and one was of stone. And they did that because they knew that as far as prophecy was concerned in their day, there were going to be two destructions of the earth, one by fire and one by flood. And of course, we know the one by flood came, the one by fire has not come yet. So they built these two pillars, one of stone and one of brick, the brick to withstand the fire judgment and then the stone one to withstand the water judgment. Uh, and so, in, the, in either case of whichever one happened first, one would be left standing to preserve their knowledge. And a lot of people actually believe that this is none other than the Great Pyramid, the one that's still standing. Uh, and that on that or in that was recorded 
their ancient knowledge and who knows where, you know, if we can find that still or if someone has taken it and hidden it, you know, deep in the bowels of the who knows what. So we don't know that for sure, but just know that there was an attempt by them to preserve the knowledge of that the humanity had gained at the time before the flood in all that wickedness. And so I said here that it is likely that the included the knowledge of the mating of humans with angels and that that was known through this knowledge that was kept in these pillars as well as through one or more of Noah's sons. And that might have likely been Ham, which was became the wicked son of Noah. And from Ham's line of descendants came the Canaanites. And so all of this kind of fits together and you start to understand, wow, all of this wickedness was not only known of after the flood, but there were instructions that came down and were kept and preserved through the flood that the that mankind could have used, the sons of Ham, the Canaanites, to then perpetuate some of those wicked deeds, including the work with angels and mating and etc., etc., to produce more giant offspring, Nephilim. And then I, when I have done some other study on the particularly the ziggurats of Ur, this sparked something in me to understand that perhaps this was one of the ways in which this was done. So join me here as we look at a ziggurat. Now ziggurats were built with a stone platform on top and they would, uh, from what I read, it also would have like a little room built possibly with a stone table or bed built in it and a huge couch that was larger than a human couch <laughs> to sit on. And there was a reason for that. It says it, it's likely that this stone platform was actually a ritual bed where a virgin priestess would copulate with the angel deity of the city. So each city in ancient Ur after the flood in the time of Abraham would have a ziggurat built as their temple of worship. They would build it to the height they believed where the heavens started, and that was a certain height above the ground, about 60 feet or so. so. That was the height at which they would make sure they got these ziggurats at least that high. And then on top they would build this ritual space where one virgin priestess would go and live her life out up there where this ritual stone bed was built that was huge. It was bigger than for a human and a huge couch that was bigger for a human. And so there was this, their idea, their thought was they were bringing down and summoning the angel deity of their land to come and copulate with a perfect virgin to then create more Nephilim offspring for rulership and leadership in their land, to make their land the greatest. And there were all these ancient cities and wars between them at the time. And you can read about that in the scriptures uh, and in other, other uh, texts. But this is what the ziggurats were built for. There was an effort to bring forth an angelic conception to produce giant offspring and preserve the line of the kings of that city. And these were all built after the flood because they got that knowledge that came down through the flood, probably through Ham, who then was the, the wicked son. And we're going to see more about that in a second. Uh, but then his descendants go throughout the land and they build these things and they start summoning and creating these cities based on these men of renown, these Nephilim, who they are now reproducing after the flood. Now I found this too in Herodotus. You know that I'm not just blowing smoke, but this is from Herodotus, a Greek 
historian. He's called by some the father of history because he was one of the first historians we have a large compendium of. From his book one, Cleo, he talks about these ziggurats. And it says, Assyria possesses a vast number of great cities whereof the most renowned and strongest at this time was Babylon, whither after the fall of Nineveh the seat of government had been removed. In the middle of the precinct there was a tower of solid masonry, the ascent to the top on the outside with a path that winds around the towers. On the topmost tower there's a spacious temple built. Inside that stands a couch of unusual size, richly adorned with a golden table by its side. There is no statue of any kind set up in this place. That's because it's the angel deity's home. Who, uh, nor is the chamber occupied of nights by anyone but a single native woman who is chosen for himself by the deity out of all the women of the land. So apparently they would parade all the women, the virgins of the land up and the deity himself, the angel deity of that nation, would choose one of the virgins somehow. That's not detailed, but they would choose that one virgin to stay and live there. And I believe that was to copulate. And we're going to see in a second that's true. They also declare, says Herodotus, but I, for my part, do not credit it. So Herodotus couldn't even believe this because this was thousands of years before Herodotus wrote this. But he said that the god comes down in prison to in person to this chamber and sleeps upon the couch this is like the story told by the egyptians of what takes place in their city of thebes where a woman always passes the night in the temple of the theban jupiter so just as was done in ancient egypt before the flood they did the same types of things they were intentionally summoning the angel deity down to copulate with the virgin priestess and that is how they continued the plight, the lineage of the Nephilim and the giants after the flood. So now we need to understand, we've got an understanding of the, the giants and the flood and what happened. And how that knowledge probably continued most likely in the lines of the Canaanites because of that knowledge being passed down and then built into the cities in, in Sumeria and all these places. So we're going to talk now about the history of those Canaanites. Where did they come from? And how did they get involved with all this? Well, Canaan himself, the name Canaan, which the Canaanites are descendant from, was the son of Ham, who was the son of Noah, one of the ones on the ark, Ham. And the Canaanites were obviously his descendants. Uh, Genesis 9 says the sons of Noah went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham is the father of Canaan. 9.19 says, these are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. So Noah's sons spread out over the whole earth after the flood with their lineage, their progeny. Now the book of Jasher says this about, about Ham and Canaan, uh, and this is just to give you background on, you know, we say Ham was evil and wicked, but these are the reasons. So the book of Jasher details this. It talks about the garments of skin, the clothing which God made for Adam and his wife when they were went out of the garden were given to Cush, uh, Noah's son, or Ham's son, Cush, excuse me, Ham's son, Cush. And then, for after the death of Adam and his wife, these garments were given to Enoch, the son of Jared. When Enoch was taken to God, he gave them to Methuselah. And then at the death of Methuselah, Noah took them and brought them to the ark where they were with him until he went out of the ark, 
And in their going out, Ham stole the garments from Noah, his father, and took them and hid him, hid them from his brothers. So in this, you can start to see how Ham was just wicked. He wanted to steal. He wanted to take things that were not for him or were not given to him. And it started with these, these clothes that Adam and Eve um, got from God after they left the Garden of Eden. And this is talked about in... Uh, the book of Adam and Eve, it talks about after they left the garden was when some actual clothes were made for them, uh, knitted with them for them by God. And so those clothes were kept throughout the time period, and then Ham stole them from Noah once they had passed down to Noah. Now, uh, another thing it says about Ham in the Kebernagast, which is the Ethiopian book that's like a, a counterpart to the Bible, not in place of, but they keep it holy. It says, Again, after the flood, the devil, our enemy, did not cease from his hostility against the children of Noah, but stirred up Canaan, the son of Ham, and he became the violent tyrant, or usurper, who rent the kingdom from the children of Shem. <clears throat> so not only was Sam evil and wicked, he was a thief, he became violent, and he overtook the lands of Shem that were for Shem and his descendants. So you can see now that Ham was really in a bad state. He was a wicked, evil person. And, of course, that would pass down to his descendants. He would be building these cities all over the place with his descendants and ruling them with wickedness instead of, of good and um, righteousness. In Genesis chapter 9, we have this story about Ham, and this is the story where Ham sees, quote-unquote, sees Noah naked, sees the nakedness of his father. And when he, he you know, it says Noah planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk, and he went into his tent naked, and Ham, who was the father of Canaan, he saw this nakedness of his father in the tent, and he told his brothers, and then the Ham, or Sham and Japheth took a garment and laid it on their shoulders, walked backwards, and covered Noah's, up, Noah's nakedness up. And when Noah woke up and knew what his son had done to him, Ham. Now, this is the part that's hard to understand, because it seems like maybe something happened that the Bible just doesn't totally talk about. But Noah somehow knew what had happened, whatever that was, whether it was just Ham seeing him or doing something to him or his wife, perhaps. But he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brethren. And instead, he blesses Shem. He blesses Shem and says, Canaan will be his servant. So why, of course, would Canaan and Ham be upset with that and then wage war with their descendants against Shem? Because of this. Because Shem was blessed and Canaan was cursed. God shall enlarge Japheth and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem and Canaan shall be his servant too. So, because of this curse, it stirred up wickedness and hatred in Ham and Canaan's hearts. And they went forward with that wickedness. They were already destitute, of, of devoid of righteousness and holiness, but they became very wicked and bitter in their hearts. And because of what happened here, which there's a lot of speculation I don't want to go too deep into, but, you know, we have this question of what does it mean that he saw Noah's nakedness? And, and number one, it was thought of as wrong to see the nakedness of your parents or, you know, it was a, um, 
un, un, it was no, it was not honorable, you know, obviously, but it was seen as a very bad thing to to do that. And so, you know, that could be what it's talking about. But when you read some of the Talmud or the Mishnah, the writings of the rabbis, the way they thought about it was that there was possibility that he did something in there, something more than just seeing Noah's nakedness. You know, they say that it could possibly have been homosexuality or rape or humiliation, that they are frequently mentioned as possibilities in the Talmud, uh, and that one rabbinic teaching is that Ham or Canaan castrated his father, and, and that this was to stop the lineage so that they would then receive all of the, the blessings, the possessions, essentially all that, and that that is why they say that he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham, instead of Ham himself, because he was like, you took my progeny from me, I'm going to take yours from you. You're cur They're cursed. And so uh, there's also some rabbis that proposed that Ham had sex with Noah's wife, and that Leviticus 20.11 echoes this possibility that says, the man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. And so it's perhaps possible that this is what the scripture meant, that Ham went in and actually uh, raped, essentially, his mother in Noah's tent. And that because Noah was out of it, he was drunk and, you know, in a stupor or whatever uh, and didn't know what was going on. But anyway, those are possibilities. Just to think about, you know, you know that Ham was wicked anyway, but then this stuff, you know, if this kind of thing happened, then you totally understand. And I put here on the screen the references where this stuff, I saw this echoed again and again, all this stuff. It's Rashi on Genesis, the Midrash Tankuma, uh, Noach, and then Sforno on Genesis, and the Sanhedrin 70a. They all have this documented, and there's actually more. Um, I, I can give the links for all where I got all this. Uh, there's huge resources online of the, the Talmud, the Mishnah, and all these writings. So it was not too hard to search through and find this information. Uh, so going forward then with the history of the Canaanites, because we saw how wicked Ham and Canaan were and that Canaan was cursed because of what happened with Noah's father. Genesis 15 says, he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know I shall inherit it? He says, in the fourth generation that shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So the Amorites were part of the Canaanites. They were descendants of Canaan. And just know that it's talking about the Amorites having iniquity, wickedness, and that he was God was being patient in waiting for that iniquity to come to completion. Um, they were given this essentially a chance, and God let them fulfill all their iniquity that they wanted to before he destroyed them, right? Or cast any judgment. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, or Abram, saying, Unto thy seed I have given this land from Egypt, the great river of Egypt, to the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaims, Rephaim being a specific reference to giant races, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and Jebusites. So this is the list. This is essentially, these are all Canaanites. They're all from the line of Canaan. And these are all the peoples that we're going to see God casting out of the promised land. And, you know, why was that? Well, we saw that Shem and Japheth were going to be blessed, and then Canaan was going to be cursed. So this is what is happening. Canaan was not going to receive the inheritance of the land. It just wasn't going to happen.
because of the wickedness shown in that family line. Exodus chapter 3, we see it says, uh, I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. This is God talking. And bring them to a place uh, flowing with milk and honey. The place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So just know that this is God's plan all along. And this being said to Moses was long after Noah and these promises were made or these curses and blessings were made. And so God is fulfilling all that. He is making history essentially fulfill his will and his statements, his words. And then in Exodus 3.17, it mentions these races again. Just know that it's mentioned again and again, the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. And they're gonna, he's going to remove them and bring the Israelites into a land flowing with milk and honey. It shall be when the Lord, Exodus 13.5, shall bring them into the land of the Canaanites. And it mentions all that stuff again. Exodus 13.11 Again, it says, The Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, as he sware unto thee and to thy fathers. He shall give it to thee. So this was known. It was known all the way through the Exodus, uh, and that, that you know God had promised this to Abraham, who was of the lineage of Shem. Shem had been blessed from the time of Noah, right? So it all makes sense when you start to understand where all this came from. And that these races of the Canaanites had been doing wickedness, including copulation with angels and creation of new Nephilim giant races, these giants, men of renown, that were going to protect their cities from any attack from Shem and Japheth. Right? Exodus 23 mentions this all again. The Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, etc. Now, the Midianites. This is an interesting group because... Uh, it's one of the ones that God told them to go and kill. And so it's, it's necessary that we understand why God told them to do that. God and Moses commanded the Israelites to kill all of the, the Midianites. All right, Exact, essentially, vengeance on them. And in Numbers 31, we see it says, They warred against the Midianites as the Lord commanded Moses, and they slew all the males. And the children of Israel took all the women of Midian captives and their little ones, and the spoil of their cattle, and their flocks, and all their goods. And they burnt all their cities wherein they dwelt, and all their goodly castles with fire, and they took all the spoil, the prey, both of man and beast. Now just know that when people come and they see this, they'll usually read like these three verses, and they'll say, man, they were evil. Those Israelites were wicked. They just came in and killed all the Midianites. How horrible were they? Well, there's more to this story. So the Midianites, just so you understand who and what they, who they were, what they did. Regular behaviors among them included child sacrifice, cult prostitution, and bestiality. All sorts of sexual deviance that we talked about, you know, that the Nephilim had done before the flood, that had been passed down through the knowledge, and Ham and the Canaanites were wicked, and this had been passed down through these generations to these peoples. The Moabites and the Midianites joined forces when the Israelites came into their land out of fear. And they hired Balaam, a prophet, to curse the Israelites. And in this, this all culminated in this thing called the Incident of Peor, where the Moabites and apparently some of the Midianites, the, the term Moabite seems to have been kind of like meant both together once they combined. 
but they used their most beautiful women, and these are their daughters and their wives, and they would dress up their beautiful women and post them outside their camp, outside their tents, to seduce the Israelites and then you know, have sex with them to avoid war. They tried to instead just you know, coax the Israelites to come into them. They would do anything they wanted physically and in this way try to quell their aggression and keep them from fighting them. And they felt, because they felt inferior, they knew the Israelites were big and gaining strength and growing, and they felt like they did not have the force necessary to defeat the Israelites in a battle, which they felt was coming. Because the Israelites then did go into these women of Moab and Midian, and they partook of their sacrificial meats and wines, they would not only have sex with them, they would give them wine and the meats that were sacrificed to their idols and all this, and just get them drunk and kind of like lazy. Uh, that God got angered then with Israel, and he sent a pestilence because of this. So Israelites who engaged in this stuff were then getting a disease, if you will. And that's how it's talked about. It's talked about as a pestilence or a plague upon the Israelites. And it talks about the thousands of the Israelites that were affected by this plague in the scriptures. Apparently, this sickness was spread through or because of this sexual interaction. And because we get hints about this as we read these texts, God then tells the Israelites to avenge themselves on the Midianites uh, and to wage war against them because of all this wickedness that's going on. Avenge them. The, there were five Midianite kings, and almost all of the Midianite people were killed except for the virgin maidens. And this was, this was said that they were not supposed to kill the virgin maidens. Moses was telling the people this. You don't, don't have to kill the virgins because they haven't had sex with anyone. And why was this? Because this sin of fornication and the pestilence that came because of it, just you can think of this as a sexually transmitted disease. This is what happened. Because of their sexual sin, they were given this pestilence, this disease. And so they had to kill all the others who had copulated because they had this pestilence. They had to cleanse. And it says after the battle, they had to cleanse themselves. There were all these different things Moses said after this battle that they had to go and wash themselves if they had touched any dead body or waged war or anything like that. They had to go cleanse themselves for a period of time because they were going to get this disease. That's what it was about. They had to wipe out this disease. And so that's why women were included, but not virgins. And all the men and the cattle and everything else, it was because there was a pestilence across all of it. And here's some of the statements that, that help you understand that. It says, you know, there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. It says, but all women and children that you that have not known a man by lying with him keep alive for yourselves that's the statement i was talking about they didn't kill anyone who hadn't copulated hadn't had intercourse because that was what spread this pestilence whosoever hath killed a person and whosoever hath touched any slain purify yourselves is what it talks about and purify your raiment and that's made of skins and all work of goat's hair that and things that are made of wool apparently this pestilence got this disease would get lodged in the goat skins and the wool and etc etc so he was telling them how to cleanse themselves so that they didn't get the pestilence 
even if they hadn't, you know, copulated with a woman of Midian or whatever, because that was how that was spread. This is what happened. It was a disease that was transmitted. They had to stop it from occurring. A pandemic, if you will. <laughs> so now on to the Amalekites, uh, not the Canaanites. These were not Canaanites. But they were part of the land of Canaan where the Israelites went in and they defeated the Amalekites. These Amalekites were descended from Esau through Eliphaz and then to Amalek, his son. And in 1 Samuel 15, 3, it says, Now go smite Amalek. This is God talking to the Israelites. Go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And this is another one of those texts where, you know, people will see this, they'll read this, and they'll be like, see, that's it, hands down, God is evil, the Israelites were evil, carrying out God's evil wishes, and they just wanted to wipe out this race. Well, it wasn't, for one, it wasn't a race, it was all of one man's progeny that were wicked, and we're going to see that in just a second. This now, these are records from, in the Bible from way before this, way before so what you just read in Samuel was, of course, the armies uh, just about the time of David and all that. That was way after what we're about to read. This is in Exodus. It says, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So there was a battle way before the time that we were talking about. There was battles with the Amalekites. They had, they had initiated battles against the Israelites in the past. Here's one in Rephidim that's mentioned in Exodus 17. It says, And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. This is the battle where Joshua and others held up Moses' arms so that they could win the war because God said when his hands were raised, he was, they were going to win the war. But if they lowered his hands at any time, they would start losing the battle. So the Joshua and them came up and held up Moses' arms so that they win this battle. This was against the Amalekites, King Amalek. And so there had been battles before where the Amalekites had come against Israel. This wasn't just Israel and God out of the blue saying, let's just go wipe out some Amalekites today. We've seen those Amalekites over there. No, they had been waging war against the Israelites for centuries. 1 Samuel 7:12 says the Midianites and Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along the valley like grasshoppers for multitude their camels without number and sand of the sea for multitude. Just know that it groups the Midianites and Amalekites together here just you know in terms of they were parallel kind of they were similar the wickedness was just rampant. The wickedness was rampant between these two groups and they were a lot of them but there were multiple incursions with the Amalekites, and I found Amalekite incursions and battles in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and 1st Chronicles. All these different accounts of battles with the Amalekites. So this was not just like some, okay, well, we're just going to go out and find a race to wipe out today. We're going to wipe out all those Amalekites. No, they had been fighting them for centuries, and God was like, it's enough. You are done. We're going to finish this because you have fought against my people again and again and again. So, you know, it doesn't seem like the clean, easy story that the atheists always give or God was just wiping out people for the sake of it. No, there was reasons. There were battles being fought. 
1 Samuel 15, 2, the Lord of hosts says, I remember that which Amalek did, Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. And that's what we read about in Exodus. Then, because God was judging them for this, for their wickedness and evil and battle against the Israelites, he was judging them in this final battle. 1 Samuel 14, 48, he gathered an host and smote the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of them that spoiled them. And that was when they defeated them. It says uh, in Samuel 15, 3, go and smite Amalek, utterly destroy all. And we read that verse that it was going to be man and woman, infants, sucklings, oxen, all the animals, everything. And it says in 1 Samuel 15, 18, the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites. They were sinners. And they had been doing wickedness for so long and been such a thorn in God's side and in the side mainly of the Israelites that God said, you're not going to treat my people that way. And so you, he then told the Israelites, go fight against them and they're going to be delivered in your hand and you're going to kill all of them, everything, because they have waged war against us for too long. So now we've talked about all these Canaanite groups and these wars that people will hold up and say, look, God was evil and wicked. He killed races. But the fact is that, yes, races were killed. All of humanity was killed during the flood. But was God justified? We must ask that question because, as we talked about, the word genocide just basically means the killing of a race, the killing of a group of people for the intent of removing them, extinguishing them. But then we add it all, you know, people add all that anger and malice and hatred. Well, it's a hatred, it's psychotic, it's all this. But now we're going to see that God may have been justified in every single battle that was waged and every single time that this stuff happened. Did God commit genocide? I mean, in a basic sense of the word, I would say yes. He was directly or indirectly involved in the killing of groups of people and all mankind in the case of the flood, wasn't he? And that would be considered, just generally speaking, a genocide. But, and that's, so if a simple meaning of the word genocide is taken, then yes, I can see that God, either directly or mainly indirectly in all the Canaanite battles, was involved in killing or waging war against. And, you know, I would be careful of this because waging a battle against a race is not a genocide. It's not considered genocide. But extinguishing them, like for instance what we saw in the case of the Amalekites or in the flood of Noah, you could say that's a genocide. So, but if you see genocide as requiring a malice or a hatred, then no, God did not do these things out of hatred. That is never chronicled. There was no hatred. It was a judgment because of the wickedness of these peoples. And we just chronicled the wickedness of these peoples from child sacrifice to to battles against and trying to murder all the Israelites and all these different things. I mean, the wickedness was enormous. And so because these were judgments, this was not malice in, on God's part. This was not hatred on God's part. It was not a psychosis. It was a judgment as if a judge in a court passed down judgment. You have been wicked. Your time is done in being wicked. So you must be now punished, essentially. That's not a genocide in the sense of a hatred or malice or psychotic extinguishing of a race. That's not what that is. 
So these people we've chronicled, they worshipped false gods. They performed sexual immorality, not only with between humans, but with angel deities in an effort to recreate what happened before the flood. There was temple prostitution and debauchery. It was normative in these societies of wicked people, these Canaanites. This was, in fact, you know, just off the cuff, you know, I read an article once where they had excavated in archaeology and found Philistine appliances. There were these little ceramic things that Philistines would strap onto their penises because it it created like erections and it, it was it's so just wrong and ridiculous. Their sin knew no bounds. They they did all sorts of things you can't even imagine. They would take infants and burn them alive as an offering to Molech. This is what they did. They would take brand new infants and put them in a burning fiery statue of Molech and the, the, the statue was metal would turn hot and cook the child and then the fire flames would lap up and then burn them to death and they would be built with horns throughout the uh, throughout the statue so that when the person or baby who was screaming would be screaming in pain and agony it would go through those horns and make this horrible sound you don't even have a clue, probably, what these people were like, what they did. It was hideous. So did God break a law by killing these wicked peoples? And the, the answer is no. Law only exists because there is a God. Law is comes forth from God. He's the only one that ever gave law. Of course, man has tried to replicate that and make all sorts of laws, but the initial law, like the law that was given to Moses, which was for Israel, that was given to them by God himself. So no, God didn't break any law by judging the wicked. That makes no sense to say he broke a law by doing this. So did God commit some sort of sin by doing this? No, Sin, the definition of sin is offending God himself. That's what the Hebrew word for sin means. Offense or debt to God, essentially. So he can't offend himself. There's no way to do that. It doesn't, it's illogical. It's anathema. It doesn't make sense. Were those that were killed then, oh, sorry, I skipped one. Is there then maybe a natural law that was broken by God you know, having these peoples killed or judged for their wickedness. Well, as creatures of the Creator, God, He can't really break any natural law in regards to us. He's the Creator. He put us here. He can take us out of here. That is logical, and that is how it is, because He is God Almighty. He is the God, the Most High God. And so when He makes a creation and then takes it away, he is perfectly within his rights to do that. No natural law is broken. Now, we talk about natural law being between men because we are all the same. So there is a natural law there, perhaps, that we should not infringe on each other's rights to all be free and do as we see fit as long as we're not stopping someone else from doing that. So that's the kind of a natural law like is in our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution for the United States. But... But God can't violate that because he's above all that. He's not a human. So that natural law between humanity does not apply to him. 
So he violated no natural law by judging these wicked people. Were those that were killed then deserving of this form of punishment? Yes. We've established that wholeheartedly in all the texts we've read, that they were severely depraved and wicked, and they deserved every form of punishment that had been meted out. Probably they deserved worse, but instead God gave them mercy by killing them. So, summary. Let's just talk through this again with my points kind of all summarized together. Is God good? And, you know, this is the question I think most people are really asking when they say, or are trying to discuss this. Is God a good God, or is he evil and wicked? And that depends on what is your definition of good. Because he acts in complete harmony with his will. He is God, he is the source, the creator, and he never acts in defiance of his own will, because he is perfect. Like, we as humans are fallible we make mistakes we do stupid things sometimes we don't even know why we're doing them but god doesn't isn't like that his will and his actions are perfectly in alignment and so he can't do anything bad per se because he only acts in accordance with his will and that is good does that make sense to you his judgments are just because he is the source and end of justice or morality because he defines it he is always just, no matter what he does. So my opinion is, even if, which is not the case, but even if he, out of hatred or malice, had wiped out races of people, and again, that's not what happened, but if it had, he would have been justified. Because he is the source of justice. He's God. You, you can't be unjustified in dealing with your creation in any way you see fit because it's your creation. Do you understand? It's a very logical argument. It's reasonable. But what's not reasonable is saying that, oh, God the Creator can't deal with His creations in any way He sees fit. He doesn't have a right to do that. Well, that right can't supersede Him because He is the source of all rights. In reality, God shows us that he desires to love us and provide for us. Wickedness, then, what we saw in those Amalekites and in the Canaanites and before the flood in mankind, wickedness is man's refusal of his love, which they then must judge and remember that we saw times where he was staying his hand. He was waiting and giving people a chance. Like in the city of Nineveh, you know, he told Jonah, if there was 10 that were righteous, I would save this land, but they're not. And so God would stay his hand from judgment for a long time. And again, like that verse said, until the iniquity was complete and fulfilled in that nation. And he must judge wickedness in that way. Now, we, we had that statement by Richard Dawkins in the beginning, and I wanted to go back to it because this is what most people, I think, they've heard this or seen Richard Dawkins or other atheists say this kind of thing, that God's petty, unjust, unforgiving, all this stuff. And so I took each of these points, and I, I each one, we can think about it now in context of everything we've read, and we can understand, was God vindictive? No, he might have allowed the Israelites to take revenge, uh, or avenge themselves, but it was injustice. So vindictive meaning revengeful, they weren't necessarily always taking revenge. It was more about God judging these peoples. 
And so their judgment had been passed, and God said, Now, Israel, you go exact my judgment upon that people because they have been wicked for time after time. And it wasn't one incursion. It was multiple throughout history. These are wicked, wicked people who were killing people. Was God a bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser? Well, no. How many times did God actually ethnically cleanse? We only saw that he had the Israelites drive people out of the Holy Land, drive them out, or wage battle against them. It wasn't, they didn't line them up and then slice their heads off. Only a couple times did we see anything like that, like the uh, Amalekites, but they had been waging war against God and his people for centuries. And then the Midianites, they had done wickedly evil things and seduced the Israelites and caused a pestilence in the Israelite nation. Was God misogynistic, which means a hater of women and, and girls, essentially a hater of females. And I think that Richard Dawkins just starts throwing terms in, but no, God doesn't hate women. If we had done a study on this during this video, understand that God has created man and woman with specific roles and wants them to fulfill the roles for which they were created. That's it. And he loves that. When that works together, he loves that. Is God homophobic, meaning he has a fear or hatred or mistrust of lesbians and gay people? No. But wickedness is wickedness, and God defines wickedness, and that is one of the things that is wicked in the Bible. And so God must judge wickedness. He created man and woman to do certain things and be a certain way. And that is against the natural created order of that. So God does, th that's wicked. That is offensive to God. It's wicked. Is God racist? He, does he discriminate or prejudice based on race? No. No, we have not seen any evidence of this in the Bible. He has a chosen people which was chosen for a reason, that doesn't mean anything other than for that time period, God chose the Israelite nation to display his glory on earth. That isn't racist. He chose them for a reason. He also allowed any Gentiles who wanted to be a part of that faith that the Israelites were supposed to have, their belief in him, that they could do that. And Rahab is an example of that. She was one of the Jericho uh, Canaanites, and she helped the Israel and said, your God is the God. And then she was allowed to be a part of Israel. For then on, her whole family came into Israel. So God is not racist. He didn't discriminate based on race. He did discriminate based on wickedness. If you were wicked, he was going to judge that. Infanticidal. Was God an infant killer? No. But was the Amalekites, were the Amalekites infant killers? Yes. They sacrificed their infants to idols and burned them alive. Was God genocidal, a race killer? No, not in the sense of hatred or malice. He only exacted judgment upon these groups of people. It wasn't genocide in the sense of forethought, like intended extinguishing of peoples. But they had been wicked for decades and centuries and eons. Is he filicidal? This is meaning a son killer. Did he kill his own son? No, Israel killed God's son. God sent Jesus to do all these things on earth, and Israel killed them. Men killed Jesus, not God. God didn't kill Jesus. That's ridiculous. Richard Dawkins just doesn't understand Scripture. doesn't understand English language, I don't think. Is God pestilential? Does he cause pestilences? Well, when it's in interest of his judgment upon nations or peoples, it's a judgment, and that's not... 
That's not wrong. Judgment for wickedness is not wrong. Is God megalomaniacal? Meaning, does he have delusional fantasies of wealth or power or omnipotence? No, it's not delusion. God is powerful and omnipotent. He, there's no delusion there. He's not megalomaniacal. God is that. He is the source. He's the most high God. He is the one from which everything else came. So no, he has no delusion or fantasy. <laughs> is God sadomasochistic? And that means having pleasure from acts involving pain or humiliation, either from yourself or other people. No, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. God had a reason for everything he did. He explains himself very well. Richard Dawkins and atheists ignore those explanations. Was God a capriciously malevolent bully, according to Richard Dawkins, which means impulsively spiteful, like, oh, just at a whim, I'm going to just destroy those people. No, it was always meted out and measured, and it was postponed in many cases or delayed. God didn't want to have to judge people people. He wanted them to change, but they didn't. So he had in the end to judge wickedness. And that's all the time I'm going to give to Richard Dawkins. All of these statements he makes, every single one, even though he can rattle them off in five seconds really fast, he's practiced it probably, they're all false. All those statements are false. Sorry about my phone there. Um, and so it's just ridiculous that people will hold this up as some kind of evidence that God is evil or wicked. They didn't read the Bible. They didn't pay attention to the stories that are there for you. They're waiting for you to understand them. But if you don't read them, you'll never understand. And then you accept stupid people's comments like this. So I wanted to give you this, this illustration. It came to my mind when I was thinking about all this. And, and it goes back to what we've already talked about, about the reasonableness of thinking that God can't do what he wants with his creation. If you, as a you know 10-year-old kid, Take all your Lego men and you go to the sandbox or whatever and you set them up as, you know, you, you put together all these different Lego men and you make like little groups of people and these are fighting these people and these are doing this and this is the. Let's say that's your creation and, and you are their God essentially. You put them there. So when you as a kid in the sandbox smash half of them and tear them apart, throw them over to the side, like, oh, you're all dead. Is that wrong of you? No, you set up everything. You put them there. You put them together. So it is not wrong for you in your sandbox situation as a kid with your toys to smash half of them. You initiated that. You are the only reason it even exists. And in the same way, we cannot ever hold God's actions against him because he is God and we are all from him. So when you as a human, look up to God and say, you don't have the right to do something to me. You better look back at yourself. This is what the whole book of Job is about. He has every right to do anything he wants to you, to allow anything to happen to you, to extinguish your physical life in an instant if he wants. And by the way, he knows that you have a soul and a spirit that will return to him. But that also will be judged. And so it's, it's just God is perfectly capable and justified in any action towards us whatsoever because we are his creation. And the fact is we just established in everything that we read 
that he is not, in fact, maniacal or evil or wanting for anything other than for our holiness and righteousness and our doing what is natural for us and what he created us to do. And because he's the creator, when we fulfill his purpose, he just showers us with love. I mean, it, it's so easy to understand if you just take time. That's the problem. Most people don't take any time to understand the scriptures and understand God. And so, you know, we need to tell them when we get into discussions with people about this kind of thing, no, God's not evil in any way. He's tried throughout history many, many times to bring man to righteousness. And he's succeeded in most, you know, many instances with the, people, the Israelite nation, with the patriarchs, with those Israelites who stayed with him, stayed true to him, with the Christians who accept God and his son Jesus Christ and believe, and he's building a kingdom and it's like he's he's done everything for us to do that but people still turn away and they choose the way of satan instead of the way of god and he can't help that he can't help that if you turn away from him and choose wickedness instead of choosing him so in the end he has to judge and that's what you saw in the old testament and it should be a lesson to you that god will have to judge us at some point he will have to make judgment and it's because he is god and all things return to him and so he can't abide with creatures of his that are in direct opposition to him constantly wickedness you wouldn't be able to either if you were the creator you wouldn't want your subjects to stay around all the time and be with you if they hated you and were in opposition and fighting you all the time in wickedness. And that is why God is just in whatever he does. But what, the, what we have had displayed to us throughout history is that he does everything he can to allow us to come to righteousness and holiness. And that's what he desires. And he's put himself out there. He gave us his son to show us that love. And we would totally reject it and we go the other direction. He gives us a time, lets us fulfill that iniquity, just as he gave those Canaanites time to fulfill their iniquity. But if they never turn, then judgment will come. So that is it on the God of Genocide. Thank you for joining me. If you've stick, stuck around, like I said, it takes a while to get to the information. You have paid the price, and now you have all the information. Good job. Uh, I love you guys. I thank you for your support. And if you can extend that support by continuing to like and subscribe my videos uh, or get the alerts and then share them with your friends. These points are not just for you. They're not just for me. They're for anyone we can share them with. So try to do that if you can. And again, I will make a blog post as usual. It may take a few days to get all my information up on the blog, but I will then link it from the video. Thank you so much and God bless you.